1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. On February 1st, 1936, Begum Hazard Mahani, famed Indian writer and independence activist, sends the first of several letters to her daughter. She's traveling on the Hajj, passing through Iran and Iraq on her way to Mecca. Along the way, she writes to her daughter, noting the sights and sounds she experiences on her pilgrimage, and gives us a glimpse into a different kind of travel writing from a different kind of travel writer. Those letters are the subject of Daniel Mackerowitz's chapter in Worlds of Knowledge in Women's Travel Writing, edited by James Uden. The book covers travel writing by women mostly in the 18th and 19th centuries as they travel through Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Both James and Daniel join us today to talk about their book and their respective chapters. James Uden is Associate Professor of Classical Studies at Boston University. Uh, He researches and writes about Latin literature and the transformation of ancient ideas in later eras, particularly the 18th and 19th centuries. He has published essays on a broad range of topics, including Catullus, Virgil, Love Elegy, Travel Literature, and Ancient Fable. His first book, The Invisible Satirist, Juvenal, and Second Century Rome, offers a new interpretation of the poems of Juvenal, showing how the text responded to changing conceptions of Roman identity and contemporary trends in Greek rhetoric and philosophy. His second book, Specters of Antiquity, Classical Literature, and the Gothic, 740-1830, explores the work of British and American novelists of the 18th century. Daniel Makarwicz is a professor of Soh- Literature and Culture at Northwest University. His research considers the history and culture of Muslims in Islam in South Asia with an emphasis on Urdu literature, travel writing, popular culture, and language politics. He is a translator from Urdu, Hindi, Punjabi, and Persian, and currently the director of the South Asia Research Forum. Today, we talk about what makes these examples of travel writing so interesting and what the genre of travel writing means today after two years of travel restrictions. So, James and and Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. James, perhaps let's start with a question for you. You know, what do we learn from studying the genre of travel writing and travel writing by women in particular?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of contemporary travel writing, the thrill of reading Travel writing is that you get to visit vicariously places that you may never be able to travel to yourself. When you read historical travel writing, and that, that's what our book is about, uh, in a way the pleasure is doubled uh, because you go to places that you may not get to travel to, and then you also go to periods in the past that are would be otherwise inaccessible. Um, We have found in our project that travel writers also have a certain eye, they preserve details of everyday life that may not get preserved in more prestigious genres or in official reports. So when you read the account of an 18th century traveler to Europe, you might get a sense of how much breakfast cost or what the smells were like or what it was like to... Um, see a particular fruit for the first time. Also, these kind of small, everyday details are preserved in travel literature, unlike in other genres. And then for women's travel, yeah, uh, it's it's fascinating to see the world through the eyes of women, because as uh, some of our contributors prove in this book um Women in historical periods when they traveled often had access to parts of the world that men weren't allowed to see. So one of our contributors talks about how, for for example, English travelers visiting the Muslim world, uh, yes. women were allowed into women's quarters or could go to harems or places uh, which men were were barred from and so, Women travelers really did preserve details that were inaccessible in travel narratives
0: written by men. And you know, if you if you go through the of the Book*, I mean, most of the women writers, I believe, they're writing in the in the 18th century, 19th century, um, yeah. in the early 20th century. You know, James, what is it about this? period of time, this period of history, that makes it an interesting period of study in terms of travel and travel writing.
3: Yeah, Nicholas. I mean, uh, it, it's worth pointing out that, of course, women in other world traditions were writing uh, accounts of their travels long before the 18th and 19th centuries. So uh, in ancient Greece and Rome, for example, I mean, we have a text written by a woman from the late 4th century describing her pilgrimage from Egypt to Jerusalem, the so-called journey of Egeria, the itinerarium Egeriae. That's a fascinating text. Uh, In the Japanese tradition, uh, for a millennium, women have been writing accounts of their journeys. But for English, writers in English, uh, there's a, a boom in women's travel writing that happens in the 18th century. So, between 1700 and 1770, there were only two published travel narratives by women in England, but then from 1780 to 1840, there were over 200. So there was a real spike in women's travel writing, and that's what we were excited by. Um, the The essays in this book cover the early 18th century to the early 20th century, so we're in a period in which it was common and accepted And uh, popular in the literary marketplace to read travel accounts by women.
0: So I want to maybe talk about some of the some of the women writers that the various essays in this volume deal with. And I feel maybe this is a good chance to bring in to bring in Daniel. You know, Daniel, your your chapter takes a different route. You're translating the work of Begum Hazrad Mahani. Um, I guess first of all, kind of who who was she in in Indian history? and you know why did you choose to translate her writing um, in particular?
1: Great questions. Um, so to the first question, uh, Begum Hasrat Mohani uh, is best known today as having been a uh, a sort of freedom fighter in India. Um, <clears throat> she was born, roughly around the town of Lucknow in Northern India. Um, She dedicated most of her life to uh, fighting against colonialism. Um, She spent her time in various sorts of pursuits, selling goods that would raise money for the national cause. Um, She spent quite a bit of time publishing Uh, running her husband's newspapers and magazines. Um, Both she and her spouse were very engaged in this cause. Uh, Perhaps because she was a woman, uh, she was not arrested uh, as he was, but her husband spent several years in jail, during which time she completely took over both of their activities. Uh, So she's really well remembered uh, for her contributions uh, to, to the end of colonialism in India. However, at the same time, she was really active in quite a few different spaces. Um, She was very committed to religious pursuits, to pilgrimage. Um, She and her husband were constantly traveling uh, around South Asia and also to the Middle East to perform various pilgrimages. She was um, uh, initiated in various uh, Sufi lineages. and, and she spent a lot of her time also writing letters, keeping her friends and her family uh, up to date on what uh, she and her husband were up to. So it's those letters that ultimately end up being, some some of her letters on her pilgrimages that end up getting published in her husband's magazine after her untimely death. So I chose to translate her work because it offers a really fascinating introduction into the ways that ideas about travel um, circulated in more private spaces. I think what distinguishes, and, and James can uh, disagree with me here, but what, what may distinguish her work from some of the other women in the book is that they are, that her, her writing is private. She's writing to her daughter and she expects other members of the family to read it, but she's not expecting it to be published. So we're getting a very particular view, and there are certain things in her letters that we would not see in a in a an account that she had intended to publish. For example, she points out um, sort of her husband's kind of trickery in getting past certain regulations, and I don't think that she would have included that information in. And a published accountant, so it's really fascinating to see how women were um, writing, sort of behind the scenes, and and that's one of the aspects that I think that my uh, that my translation offers to this to this volume. It's a a little bit
3: unique.
0: Um, To kind of bring James back in, you know, so 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 um, the Alshap chapter is kind of a different thing. It's one of the it's a different writer um but how about some of the other writers mentioned uh in in this in this volume kind of what were they like what were what were they like and why do they travel to europe and further afield
3: yeah maybe one thing to say is that there are there's all sorts of interesting border wars involved in the field of uh the scholarly study of travel literature you know what what does travel, uh, what is travel? I mean, uh, are refugees travelers, uh, prisoners of war travelers? Is commuting travel? You know, what's the boundary between travel and mobility or travel and movement? Um, and then there are debates about what travel literature constitutes. You know, could a, could a work of fiction be a work of travel literature or, you know, it's the, the kind of really exciting work that Daniel is doing. I mean, if if a, an account of travel was never meant to be published in the first place, does it count as travel literature? So, I mean, like a lot of scholars who are interested in travel, we wanted to broaden the boundaries of what travel could mean. As I say in the introduction, the borderlessness of travel as a concept, as an idea. That's what we're really interested in. Um, so there's a huge variety of different uh, travelers that are explored in this book. Um, there are literary accounts of travel. I mean, I'm, I'm writing about Jane Austen, so that's a very literary account of travel. Um, we also, for example, have a chapter uh, about a stowaway on a French boat. She's the second French woman to circumnavigate the globe. And she uh, disguised herself as a man and stowed away on the boat of her husband, a captain, as they moved around the world. And she wrote an account of that journey. We have a chapter about that. Um, We have chapters about uh, women visiting Iran and India uh, and Japan. Uh, so it, it's a really wide variety, but then, you know, that's part of the appeal of studying travel literature. It's it's such a heterogeneous field of writing.
0: You, you just mentioned your chapter, and I want to give you the opportunity to talk about um, your chapter and what you do in it. So, you know, you, James, you wrote your chapter on Jane Austen's novel, Northanger Abbey. Um, right you know, the trend of Gothic tourism, you know, but what actually happens in that novel? And what does that novel tell us about the idea of travel writing?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know how many uh, of the listeners have read this novel, probably quite a lot because it's a, it's a popular novel, which made it quite intimidating to write about, but yeah, Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. And it's the, the conventional way of describing the plot is that it's about a very impressionable young Girl Catherine Morland, who has read too many gothic novels full of decaying abbeys and evil monks and uh, crumbling ruins and uh, sinister goings on, uh, and then when she visits the manor of her uh, romantic interest, she misunderstands what she's seeing as the Gothic castle of her imagination. So that's basically the sort of Don Quixote-esque plot of this novel. Um, but what I do in the chapter is, is try, as you say, Nicholas, to, to think about what it could tell us about the experience of travel, because this is after all a novel about movement. Um, now. At exactly the time that Jane Austen was writing this novel uh, in the 1790s, uh, it was impossible for most British travellers to visit the continent because of the French Revolution. So the the war interrupted the tourism that was uh, otherwise a constant feature of, of English life going over to France. And so instead, there was this fashion for, as I explain in the chapter, Um, gothic tourism in which the contemporary fashion for the gothic novel started to affect the way in which uh, Britons who couldn't travel to Europe saw their own domestic tourist sites. Um, All of these uh, tourist guides started to spring up in which uh, British sites were excitingly described as sites full of gothic uh terror and excitement and sinister intrigue so what i suggest austin is doing in in northanger abbey is putting her heroine through essentially the contemporary fashion for gothic tourism i mean she's visiting a site uh and she wants to see uh she wants to experience gothic thrills and uh see things that the kind of uh the tourist guides of the time were advertising But then what does it tell us about the experience of travel? Well, we all know that when we visit new places, we tend to see those places through the lens of our own expectations. You know, sometimes those expectations come from literature. uh, And one one part of the process of learning about a new place is progressively shedding those illusions and realizing that the, the place you see is different from the place that you imagined in your mind. So, you know, rather than seeing the plot of Northanger Abbey as one in which this naive girl misunderstands the place that she visits as a a gothic castle, uh, and then she sort of wises up at the end when she sheds her illusions, you know, maybe she just travels. You know, maybe what she is experiencing when she has some illusions about a place and then she learns more about it, and then she progressively uh, discovers the place as it really is. I mean, maybe that's a common experience that all travellers can share. So, so that's really what I'm doing in this uh, uh, article about Northanger Abbey, connecting it to this contemporary fashion for Gothic tourism shaped by the French Revolution uh, and also connecting it to what I think is a common experience of travellers, that you at first have expectations of a place and then you're gradually uh, shedding those illusions.
1: Well one of the things that I really love about your chapter in the book is the way that it contributes towards an exploration of the question of what constitutes travel and how do we access historical experiences of travel, particularly among writers who whose experiences tend to be neglected. Um, <clears throat> when I began, I, I do a lot of research on um, travel writing in Urdu. And when I began my research, I really wasn't able to find many accounts by women. And it was only after I started to reconsider what exactly constitutes travel writing, what what is the sort of form, where should we look for it, um, how do we think about it, it was only once I started to open that up that I began to realize that, in fact, uh, women were actually writing quite a bit in Urdu. It's only that we had—I had to change the kinds of questions that I was asking or the arenas that I was looking in uh, to, to be able to access those experiences. And I, I think this kind of exploration of a of a novel as a recuperation of travel experiences is really uh, a, a very powerful uh, mm-hmm. contribution uh, to this question. Um, in the case of Urdu, um, uh, I mean, Begum Hasrat Mahani is a very, is, is a great example because she was writing letters to her daughter and again, not intending for them to be read, but they do look like travel. Um, they feel like travel. Um, and, and, and so it, it, it's sort of once we change the question to say how were women writing about experiences as opposed to how were writing women travelogues, we find out that, that women were very active contributors to this field. In sort of the turn of the century India, uh, Muslim women were not very regular contributors com- to, to the sort of, uh, public discourse, uh, written public discourse. They were instead writing, um, in much more circumspect spaces, um, including women's journals. Um, some were writing for private newspapers, uh, that were only circulated amongst their families. Some were writing, uh, in private diaries that weren't actually private because they were circulating them amongst their extended family. Um, So I I think one of one of the contributions of this volume is to explore this question of how do we uh, get at these experiences and how do we actually need to engage in what James called the border wars of what constitutes travel. Um, Once you start to move away from the uh, standard sort of um, engagement with the, the travelogue, then you start to access all these other experiences.
3: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, another interesting axis of difference between travel writers that Daniel has worked about in his research is vernacularity, you know, writing in the vernacular language versus the language of power has served to marginalize certain forms of writing in India. Um, Daniel, maybe you can talk a little more about that.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, there is a, a, a vast, uh, body of travel writing in nearly all of uh, India's languages. But because those languages aren't necessarily the most studied, there aren't a a huge number of resources to um, engage with those literary traditions, it remains a kind of uh, unknown space. And so the reason that I actually chose I mean, maybe it will be helpful to re- for readers to know that my chapter is a little bit different from the others in the book. In that, the majority of the chapter is actually a translation of the letter. So it has a a brief introduction, and then there's there's a full translation of the account. And the reason that I decided to do that is because almost none of the sort of travel writing tradition by women in Urdu is accessible to non-Urdu speakers. And it's even uh, inaccessible to Urdu speakers as well. This literature is not very well preserved. It's extremely difficult to find. And again, um, as James's question is kind of pointing to, there are a lot of politics um, behind the reasons why this literature is so hard to find and why it's not uh, very well preserved. And, And a lot of it has to do with the kind of relationship between English and uh, various vernacular languages. So in my case, I found, or in the case of Urdu, I find that it's actually n- important not just to think about this literature, but to actually make it accessible, to find ways to get, I mean, you can you can make arguments about um, travel writing, um, but if nobody's actually able to read that literature, um then the effect is going to be a little bit minimal. So one of, one of the projects that I'm really engaged in in this chapter and in my larger work is to, to simply um, put this writing in an accessible form before the public so that we can begin to have a conversation about what it meant to travel um, as an Indian person uh, or as an Urdu speaker in, in earlier times.
3: Daniel, I, I know that you've done some other work more broadly on Muslim women's travel writing, and you have an anthology in the works. Is that right? That is right. It'll be coming out in a couple of months. The name of it is
1: uh, Three Centuries of Travel Writing by Muslim Women. I am a co-editor on that volume with uh, Siobhan Lambert Hurley um, and Sunil Sharma, who is is your colleague at Boston. Uh, in that book, we've brought together about, I think, 44 different uh, travel, Muslim women travel authors from around the world. And, and we've, we've written along, well, we have several contributors to the volume. Um, but collectively, each chapter introduces the work of one of these 44 women and then offers an excerpt often translated of their travel writing. And uh, again, the idea there is that this literature needs to be made accessible. Most of the work in that book has never been translated. It is completely inaccessible to an English-speaking audience. Um, so, so that again kind of pushes further this idea that we need to access uh, literature. Uh, we need to find ways to access this literature to be able to open up the conversation.
0: Daniel, I I had one more question for you about about your chapter and the work of um, Begum Hazar Mahani, um, and I guess to kind of, you know, for people who uh, have not had the chance to kind of read the translation, to read your work, kind of what are some of the what are some of the interesting things that uh, Begum Hazar Mahani comes across during her travel, and, and how does she express them in in the letters to her daughter? I guess if like if you can like pick out a couple examples of of things that you thought were interesting that 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 Hazrat Mahani picked up on in in her writing.
1: Yeah, there's, 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 the, the letters are not very long, but there's so much going on in them that there are really, that I think they're a pleasure to read. I hope that you found uh, that to be the case as well. Uh, For me, one of the most fascinating aspects, as I've already mentioned, uh, is that she is writing to her daughter. And again, she doesn't expect to have an audience for these letters outside the family. So the very sort of, they're very familiar. It's clear that she has ongoing conversations or ongoing interests with her daughter, uh, and she's continuing the conversation. So, um, you know, she's, she, she likes to compare the prices uh, for various things like coats, fruit, um, the cost of travel tickets, uh, these these are an object of constant fascination for her. She's always describing what they cooked for dinner, who enjoyed what. Um, she tells her daughter that uh, Hasrat Mohani, um, her husband, uh, can't stop eating yogurt. So lots of little fascinating uh, quips like that. Uh, she's also really interested in cultural practices. So in this volume, or in, in these letters, she's traveling from... North India. First, she goes to Karachi by train. Then she takes a, a ship to Basra in Iraq. And then from Basra, she goes on the train again to Baghdad. And eventually she takes uh, what she calls a lorry uh, from Baghdad all the way to Mecca. And so there's a lot of focus on the sort of administrative procedures for making a journey like this. Um, At one point, she's very stressed because they've forgotten some of their immunization forms, um, and and they're trying to trick the administration into letting them enter Iraq without the proper documentation. Um, She meets a lot of women, uh, including Indian women, um, who were living in Baghdad. A lot of um, uh, Muslim families fled from India uh, particularly after the uprising of 1857, and they started living in various cities in the Middle East. And so Begum Hazrat Mahani begins to meet these women um, and to chat about their lives. Some of them ask her for favors. So those exchanges are also uh, really fascinating. Um, I was surprised, uh, and this, this is perhaps my own ignorance, but I was surprised to find that she felt very able to communicate with people in Iraq because... Uh, according to her, everybody in Baghdad speaks a little bit of Urdu, so she has a really easy time uh, going around, and she she she's going to all these pilgrimage sites. She's able to talk to people, um, and she describes all of this to her daughter in 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 really familiar minute detail that makes it sound like you're kind of listening in on their conversation. It doesn't feel artificial or. Um, that she's putting on a show. You're really just listening to a conversation between a mother and a daughter, uh, but both of whom have traveled extensively. So she's not explaining basic things to her daughter. Her daughter has already been, uh, to, has already traveled internationally several times. Uh, so these are, very two se- these are two very seasoned travelers uh, chatting about their experiences. Um, and so that for me is just, is just so much fun to be able to access.
0: So I want to maybe end our conversation by talking about kind of the genre of travel writing today and kind of both of your thoughts on this. And we can start with James and then head over to Daniel. You know, I think, um, and I guess there are, I, I, I have two questions. The first is, you know, I think there's there's a sense that the genre of travel writing, and maybe this is in its more modern form, it's slightly more commercial form, but the genre focused primarily on the experiences of, of frankly, white men, European men. Um, and that's a, but that's a perception that's kind of been challenged since then, been been broadened out. Um, so first of all, kind of how do you see the issue of kind of, of representation in the genre of travel writing? And then number two, you know, obviously we're oh god what we're two years three years into covid now and two three years of limited travel um certainly for me being based in hong kong but how do you think the 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 two three years of restricted travel that we've had kind of changes our appreciation for travel and for travel writing i know these are kind of two big questions um but i want to kind of maybe start with james and then hand over to daniel after that
3: yeah uh well i mean to take the second question first, I mean, we certainly felt in our travel literature group uh, at Boston University um, that there was a, a different emotional pull to the travel literature, reading it under COVID, especially seeing not only our own inability to travel. I mean, I'm here in Australia seeing my family for the first time since the pandemic as we speak, but also seeing the difficulty that people were we're having in, in traveling. It reminded us just how precious it is. Um, and, and really in a historical sense, how rare it is that, that we had reached a point of history in which travel is usually so uh, accessible um, to, to some of us, at least. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, just to say quickly about the other question I mean, my sense is that there are certainly, and then Daniel can. I, I want to hear Daniel's perspective as well. But you know, my sense is that there are certainly non-white and non-male voices out there in the travel literature tradition. But part of the problem is that travel literature itself hasn't enjoyed much prestige or vis- visibility. So you simply have to you have to find it. I mean, to take one example, I taught a class this past year, in which one of the texts was William Wells Brown, the American Fugitive in Europe from 1855, which is a travel text written by a man who uh, was born, a black man born into slavery, who was uh, freed eventually, but uh, traveled to England and to Europe. And it's just the most rich and fascinating travel text describing his experiences of um, comparative Freedom in in the in England and his ability to be taken seriously as an intellectual, and then just the crushing racism he endured once once he returned to the U.S. It's the kind of text that you would think uh, this guy's a contemporary of Frederick Douglass. It should be absolutely central to uh, American readings about its own past, and yet, as a work of travel literature, it's it's really uh, neglected. So. I mean, in terms of representation within travel literature, I, I'm keen to hear Daniel's perspective, but my sense is that there are certainly diverse voices out there in the tradition. Um, you just have to find them. Uh, Daniel.
1: Well, I think I'll, I'll answer these questions in the same order as James. Um, in, in terms of you know, the second question of how it feels to read this literature after the pandemic, Um, one of the, one of the thoughts that, that I regularly have reading this literature now is how, at least up until the pandemic, we, uh, at least a lot of people in the world have been incredibly privileged in terms of their ability to move around. Um, it feels as though there's an, an, uh, at least, you know, if you have the right passport, um, much of the world is open to you and you could visit it. Um, and that's something that perhaps uh, we take for granted. Um, but when I read earlier travel writing, I realized that this was actually just a very brief moment in which uh, a lot of the world's borders were open, at least to certain people. Um, you know, it, I reflect on you know, what, what it must have been like in World War II. If you had wanted to travel, where could you go? How could you go? It must have felt like nothing was safe. You couldn't go anywhere. Um, in earlier times, uh, you know, if you read Ibn Battuta, he talks about having to wait at the border um, in, in Sindh, in Southern India, he wants to go to Delhi and he has to wait almost a month to get permission to be able to enter um, uh, the city of Delhi. and. So perhaps the kind of experiences that we're having with COVID are, are, are more common historically than, than we would think. Of course, these dynamics are very particular, um, but I think this gives us a hint of the struggles that the that, that travel can have that we might not um, have reflected on before this pandemic happened. Um, on the question of Uh, how we should think about travel writing today and whether or not things have broadened um, beyond the sort of the study of white male travelers, I certainly think that many more questions are being asked today. And of course, since since the 1990s, um, there has been a lot more engagement with women's travel writing. Uh, But I think we do have a fair distance to go. And this question reminded me of an example that my colleague, Siobhan Lambert Hurley, uh, once shared with me about the experience of visiting an exhibit. Um, I I forget where exactly. Somewhere in England, there was an exhibit on um, the history of women's travel. And Siobhan describes kind of going to this exhibit and and seeing all of these different displays um, introducing great women travelers, but they were all European. And if I recall correctly, there was perhaps only one or maybe two who were not not European at all. And so while we have opened up that space of, of women's travel writing, there's still so many different aspects, so many different, um, you know, uh, women of so many different backgrounds who have not yet been included in the conversation. Um in part, again, because some of the writing is very difficult to access, it hasn't been preserved. And so it seems like, um, you know, with this volume, in in various other spheres, people are really pushing forward to try and in, to to broaden this conversation. But I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. And this is a, a really exciting field that I think is going to continue to develop uh, over over the, the next few years, as Uh, scholars and readers continue to find new types of travel writing and to to bring those into the conversation. And I I think that voices, um, these sorts of voices really have the potential to change the way that we think about travel and travel literature and how we think about um, the way that humans have experienced uh, travel in historical times.
0: So I think with that, that's a great place to end our interview with uh, J- James Uden and um, Daniel Makowitz, contributors and editors to Worlds of Knowledge in Women's Travel Writing. So we got into a little bit of the answer to my next question um, in our conversation. But I do want to ask James, Daniel, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Let's start with James and we'll go to Daniel.
3: Thanks, Nicholas. Well, I mean, firstly, I, I want to acknowledge the fact that this book is uh, born out of a, a research group at Boston University that has been going for um, almost 10 years now and is is ongoing. Uh, I want to specifically acknowledge the fact that uh, here we are as men talking about women's travel writing, that it, it was started by uh, a women scholar, a female scholar of of Turkey, Roberta McAuliffe uh, and Sunil Sharma, whom Daniel mentioned. Um, It's currently being run this year by Elizabeth Goldsmith, a a scholar of uh, French literature. Um, And so we will continue uh, to work as a team to investigate new avenues of travel literature. We just had a conference on masked travel. So thinking about uh, masking and travel in different historical periods. Um, As Daniel says, I mean, our current experience of traveling in masks, it's not at all unique. Uh, And in fact, you know, masking and travel go together in various ways uh, for for centuries in different traditions. So um, we uh, are ongoing in our our work in the the travel literature research group at Boston University, and uh, readers can expect future volumes in that series.
0: So, Daniel, kind of handing over to you now, um, I guess, where can people find your work and uh, what's next for you?
1: Well, I'm really excited about the book that I mentioned a few minutes ago Three Centuries of Travel Writing by Muslim Women. Um, That book, which should be coming out in August 2022, um, I think will will really contribute to this question of uh, thinking about the different ways that women produced travel writing. Um, so there's that. And then I'm also just now finishing up a full-length study of travel writing in Urdu generally, um, not just focused on, on women's writings, but on the development of the genre as a whole and the way that authors used it to kind of aspire in the world, to imagine different futures for themselves, for their communities, uh, for India, for Pakistan, um, <clears throat> so I'm continuing to engage in travel writing, um, I have one more project that I'm working on, um, that I'm really excited about, and this is a translation and a study of two travel accounts in Urdu by a husband and a wife. The husband published his travel account publicly. The wife just wrote a private journal. Um, so I'm looking at the way that these two figures described the same trip from very different perspectives. Um, so, so I suppose uh, that's something to look forward to.
0: So... You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsiaFoodbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia, that's Reviews Plural. And there are many more interviews uh, on the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The AB Podcast is on all of your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in around and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Mick Conifery, author of Everest 1922, the epic story of the first attempt on the world's highest mountain. But before then, James, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Great. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Thank you as well.